Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As was expected, Republicans have held on to control of the Senate, while Democrats have won a solid majority in the House of Representatives. So what does this mean for foreign policy and global affairs? On the line with me to talk through some of the international implications of the U.S. midterm elections is Heather Hurlbert. She is the director of the New Models of Policy Change Project at the New America Foundation and is a longtime player and analyst of U.S. foreign policy. And in this conversation, which was recorded a day after the midterms, we talk through some of the fallout from the elections as it pertains to foreign policy. This includes how the new leadership of key committees in the House and Senate may affect foreign policy decisions, and also what areas may exist for bipartisan cooperation on some foreign policy issues. In all, I think you'll find this conversation a very useful explanation of how the midterms will impact and and affect the issues that uh, you care about. If you're listening to this podcast, you're you're a foreign policy nerd, and this conversation is, is a good foreign policy nerd out about the midterm elections. So here is my conversation with Heather Hurlbert. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, from an international perspective, I think the first really important thing to take away is that um, the flipping of the House really puts almost no limitations on the president when it comes to international affairs, and we should expect him to use even more of his executive power and executive discretion abroad to the extent that the flipping of the house does limit some of the things he can do at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You know, the, the powers of the presidency are extremely vast when it comes to foreign policy making. Is there anything sort of specifically you think he might be more or less empowered to do now, though, uh, after the house has been flipped? Um, well, one thing that I think some people were tempted to see only as a political gambit, but that I expect will continue is um, increased attention and uh, sort of belligerent rhetoric toward uh, Latin America in general and Venezuela in in particular. Uh, You know, um, Vice President Pence gave a speech in Miami, gosh, was it only last week? It feels longer ago, Um, really sort of continuing to push out this kind of we are fighting in Latin America against the terrible threat of socialism line, um, which is a little bit surreal when what we're actually facing is, is regime incompetence 
leading to a, a, a really enormous humanitarian catastrophe in Venezuela. Um, similar um, incompetence combined with demand side pressures from the U.S. leading to security and humanitarian problems in Central America, which lead to the refugee and migration problems that that the is now dealing with. So in all of those areas, I think um, the president is going to do more both because he can and because I think he will feel that the rhetoric around the threat from abroad um, helped him bring out his core voters and hold on to some of those Senate seats last night. So I would I would expect um, really a, a doubling down on the the anti-refugee um, rhetoric and anti-refugee actions as well. And and there's really not much that sort of a Democrat controlled house can do to to blunt um, sort of actual anti-refugee actions, you know, such as like, you know, lifting that Congress that that presidentially imposed cap on the number of, of refugee resettlement uh, that's permitted in the U.S., right? Correct. The one the one power Congress has, which it, it the current Congress had actually used um, quite skillfully on on um, international aid and development issues, is the power of the purse. And I think rather more than many of us had expected in 2016, um, the current Congress did push back on efforts to slash various parts of the the State Department and USAID budget. And, you know, ironically, one of the things that happened last night is that a lot of moderate Republicans who had been champions of um, foreign assistance either lost or retired. So, um, you know, I think we'll be able to get budget pushback on the House side. Will we have the champions in the Senate to partner with? But frankly, we had in the previous Senate is is an open question. So this is a good segue, I think, to talk about Bob Corker leaving as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You know, no matter who or, or what happened in the Senate last night, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was going to look a lot different um, next year as it did this year because Corker from Tennessee uh, retired. You know, he was, I think, someone who was able to push back uh, against the president on some of these budgetary issues was, you know, helping to, I think, blunt some of the worst impulses of the president when it came to slashing um, development and diplomacy spending. Um you know, and, and sort of a chairman, I'd say it's probably cut from the moth of like uh, the mold of like a Richard Luger, you know, like sort of like a pragmatic kind of kind of uh, conservative foreign policy maker. Uh, but he's gone and, and chances are he'll be replaced by James Risch of Idaho, uh, who uh, does not have that sort of pedigree. Do, do you uh, sort of have any priors on Jim Risch of, of Idaho? He is not someone that's like widely known, I think. No, he's not. He has tried. I mean, my one prior, funnily enough, is that I believe I've been at uh, the Halifax Security Forum with him several times. Um, uh-huh. So um, I, I, uh, I have to go back and check that to, okay. be, to be totally sure. This is but the I November think- meeting in Halifax, Canada every yes. year. That's uh, sort of a security wonk uh, gathering. Yes, it's it's mm-hmm. um, it's Canada's answer to, to Davos only with lobster. Mm-hmm. Um but um, but I actually think I remember Rish being there in part because you thought to yourself, this is Jim Rish from Idaho, who I know nothing about. Why is he here? So I, I will say that I think he's someone who's been serious in in sort of trying to to actually be a, a participant and, and player on the on the issues. Um, the interesting thing about having somebody from such a very, very red state as as Rish is that he um, he does not have to 
play to the center, even as much as, say, uh, Corker did. And in some ways, his biggest political threat is going to come from being perceived as being not Trumpy enough. So on the one hand, you know, he has the advantage that he's not likely to to face serious challenges. And so, you know, he can say, you know, yes, I take this position on foreign aid. On the other hand, I bring home all this other stuff for you that you want. What's your problem with foreign aid? So we've we have seen cases where senators from very um, uncontested states can really play leadership roles on, on, on issues like like foreign relations that aren't normally top of mind voting issues. On the other hand, we're now in a climate where, um, you know, people look over their shoulder to see who's coming to primary them. And so that'll it'll be interesting to see whether that comes into play for him, Hmm. for him at all. Yeah. And and so far, I mean, he seems to have been a strong sort of Trumpian kind of uh, senator so far, at at least. And yeah, so so that's interesting that sort of the threat to to the extent it exists be from his right. You know, he is up for reelection in uh, 2020. You know, he's sort of leading by 30 points in in, in all polls. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't expect him to lose. But um, that's interesting that that um, that it would be a potential threat from the right that might guide some of his decisions. Yeah, and I think this is something else that um, people need to take away from last night, uh, which is relevant to a number of international issues that I I think a a hope that maybe many internationalists had was that um, what they would get last night was a a, would be seen as a rebuke of Trump's brand of of, um, international nationalism, if you will, and that that last night would mark the beginning of, of a, a resurgence or a return to, to Republican internationalism. And I think you are not going to see that. And instead, you're going to see rather the opposite, which is, as I said, the idea that um, the, the last minute um, surge of nativist messaging saved a bunch of seats. And so there's going to be greater both political and policy pressure on um, Republicans to hew in that direction. Uh, and on the House side of things, let's talk about Elliot Engel uh, for, for a moment. Uh, I, I looked this up. He's been in Congress since 1989. So he's a, a, an old hand, um, was the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, now is expected to be the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And he's sort of a, an, an interesting character. Um, you know, his um, views, uh, foreign policy views, at least as they are, uh, focused on the Middle East tend to be informed by sort of a staunchly pro-Israel stance and, and an Iran sort of hawk stance. He opposed the uh, Iran nuclear deal uh, back in 2015, though recently when Trump was uh, readying to pull out of it, he wrote an op-ed defending uh, the deal, or at least um, arguing that Trump should not pull out of it. He also, which I found interesting, was a, a strong supporter of Trump's decision to relocate the U.S. embassy uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, so he's not someone who one might expect would push back on on those kinds of issues. What's your, I guess, overall take on on Elliot Engel as a chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee? Well, the the other thing to say about Engel right from the beginning is that he is a he's a bit of a happy warrior, and so on the many many areas where he is an absolutely um, sort of typical rank of the file, rank and file Democrat on foreign policy, mm-hmm. and where he does disagree with Trump, he will enthusiastically be out there leading the charge. I think Russia 
will be one of those and that you'll see a real change in sort of what the hearings are and what issues get brought to light on um, on Senate Foreign Relations. And I think you'll see an enthusiastic championing of the State Department of Diplomacy um, of the development agenda mm-hmm. um, under his under his chairmanship. And then I also think that the comparison to uh, Senators Menendez and Cardin, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the Senate side, uh, it has also been the case that the, um, you know, Cardin, who held the chair while Menendez was um, on trial and then Menendez, when he came back, are both uh, to the right of um, to the right of the center of the Democratic Party, if you will, on on Middle East policy. Um, and that, in a way, resulted in both of them being very enthusiastic to the progressive baton anywhere else they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would guess that you'll that you'll see that from see that from Engel as well. One is sort of potential um, conflict point that I see sort of on the horizon with with Engel specifically could be uh, on Saudi Arabia, you know, to the extent and he said in the past and in statements that, you know, he supports strong US Saudi ties as a way to blunt um, Iran's influence in the region. But now, of course, you have growing momentum um, to sort of criticize and take action against Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And so I I do sort of wonder how he will um, sort of walk that line in in, in the coming weeks. Well, I'm embarrassed that I don't know off the top of my head how he voted on the Yemen resolution that the House uh, last year. I don't either. Okay. Um, but we should, yeah. uh, well, are we able to look that up and dub it in here? Yeah, um, let's do it here, here, here. I'll, I'll it. angle Yemen angle statement on angle. Yeah. And the, the September 26, he said, I support the, the, uh, the resolution introduced today and co-sponsor the measure with representative Connor and Smith. So there you go. <laughs> so. Yep. So I think, um, that, um, that, that's a great example yeah. of the pragmatism that I think you're going to see great. his display. Let's see this year. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I need to say so that you can edit this nicely. But um, no, I mean, Engel, you know, Engel unders, he's a smart, you know, he's been around since 1989. He's a yeah. smart politician. He understands that the party is moving. Um, he also, I think, as many do understand that the war in Yemen is just or the carnage in Yemen is completely indefensible. And so he is going to be um, looking for ways to to get out of the way of the tidal energy tidal wave of energy that Democrats mm. have around Yemen. And he is that that's a fight he's not going to pick. There may in the future be a fight on Saudi Arabia that he feels the need to pick, but that one's not and, not going to be it. And Yemen, at least to me, seems like a good opportunity for bipartisan um, cooperation on uh, this a foreign policy issue. You know, it is a bipartisan issue in, in the Senate. You know, some of the strongest voices, um, even before the, the Khashoggi uh, murder, to contain Saudi um, S- Saudi actions in Yemen were, were Republicans. I know like Todd Young, for example, a Republican from Indiana, ha- has sort of been on on the case for a while and has partnered with Chris Murphy in Connecticut to to put forward resolution, resolutions to try to you know tie U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia over the end use of those arms in Yemen. Um, and, and so it does seem that there actually is some opportunity for bipartisan cooperation here. Yeah, I mean, the specter of a bill um, put together by uh, Todd Young, Chris Murphy, Bernie Sanders, and Mike Lee of Utah is kind of an amazing statement at this particular moment in time. Um, and as I said, I think um, 
I think you could get a bill through the House very easily, and it would be a very bipartisan bill. You have a number of um, Freedom Caucus Republicans who also feel very strongly um, that what we're enabling in Yemen is wrong and counter to U.S. interests. I do. It'll be very interesting. You know, it was closer in the Senate than people thought it would be. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how this Senate votes when this Senate votes again on a Yemen bill in a couple of weeks, whether weeks, whether um, a number of outgoing members from both sides kind of decide the heck with it. Um, on the other hand, it does, I would expect the president to double down on his support for the Saudis, and that will make it harder for incoming Republican senators to, to buck him on it. So um, I think actually the lame duck on that will be in some ways more interesting than, than what happens next year. Um, are there any other areas uh, in that that you expect some perhaps bipartisan um, momentum on on a foreign policy issue uh, in in the coming in the coming Congress now that the House has flipped? Well, one of the things that will be really interesting to watch is what happens around spending, um, because you have um, you have on the House side uh, an incoming chief of House Armed Services, who've already said that um, that the Pentagon budget needs to go down. Um, you uh, have an incoming chair of Senate Armed Services who has two goals, he says, for his chairmanship, and one of them is to spend more. And now you have a president who says he wants to spend less, which, of course, is dramatically different from the last two years. So it would seem that there will be big opportunities for, for cross-partisan entrepreneurship to um, either cut the top line or go after specific um, sort of targets of, of waste. Now, whether that extends to any ability to either defend or bulk up the um, diplomacy and development side, as I said, I think that'll be a much harder, harder row. Um, so, but I do think that, you know, the defense spending piece is going to be one bipartisan area to watch with great interest. Again, it's a, it's a little orthogonal to foreign policy, but only a little. Um, but I think the Senate result means that we will not have a climate bill in the next year, but I think we could have an energy bill in mm -hmm. the next year, uh, which could be interesting and would have um, significant international implications. Uh, on on the, the, the spending side of thing, um as you said, it will be sort of a hard pull to boost any sort of development or, or diplomacy spending. But if it happens, it will happen because Nita Lowy makes it happen. She is the, the <laughs> new um, the, the new incoming chair of the House Appropriations Committee. She'll also, I believe, concurrently chair the subcommittee on foreign uh, relations, foreign ops spending. And basically, yeah, the, 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 that's the, my understanding. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, which which is sort of a, a unique thing to have uh, the uh, a chair also chair a subcommittee, and she is someone who has a very sort of deep and long-standing commitment to development issues. She's been like a really long-standing um, supporter, particularly of, of reproductive uh, health and reproductive uh, spend um, to, uh, health spending uh, abroad and, and at home. She's, you know, kind of beloved. I, I, I think she'll be like, uh, she, 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 she'll replace Ivanka as the sort of most powerful Jewish woman in, in the United States. <laughs> um, but it'll be interesting to see how, how she, uh, she, she, she's able to sort of navigate that thicket, another sort of New Yorker as well, and ascending, uh, ascending to the ranks of leadership. 
Yeah, you raise um, actually a very interesting point on which is going to happen on all of these spending issues, which is, of course, the House passes a bill, the Senate passes a bill, and then they negotiate. Um, and as as we know, you know, the usual way that you solve compromises, sorry, that you that you compromise on differences is that you throw money at them. So um, if I'm if I'm Lowy. I'm going to say, well, let's just pass, let's pass the budget that we want to pass and then let's, you know, make the Senate negotiate up. And that could produce some very interesting outcomes. Um, And then, you know, we'll see if we'll see, you know, how the president's feeling about his veto pen. Now, that is all I have to say, assuming that we have actual appropriations bills and not continuing resolutions, which I suppose is another possibility we should consider that just the uh, the animosity between the House and the Senate, I mean, stoked by things like the president going out and tweeting about war between the House and Senate this morning, is so great that we just continue not having civilian appropriations bills. Um, I guess just to, to conclude, you know, I, I know you have a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues, a lot of contacts, uh, you know, who who are not American, who sort of view what happens in the United States and in U.S. politics so very, very um, closely. And, and, you know, obviously it's important on, on the global stage. Sort of if you are not American, if you're talking to your friends, looking out at what happened last night, what do you think sort of the main message of last night to the rest of the world was? Well, I, one thing I will say is that I, I think um, there tends to be a misunderstanding of how much power the executive branch has. So I think there will be places that expect more change in international relations than they're going to see. So I tend to be somewhat unpopular in those crowds because I'll say, no, it's not really going to change that much. And people look at me very disappointed. Um, the other message that I think has been picked up already really clearly from the, the fading weeks of the campaign was um the president's um, using and condoning of really uh, divisive and um, and racist um, messaging around um, around ethnicity, identity, and culture, you know, so that you saw uh, you saw Nigerian officials justifying their shooting of unarmed protesters by referring to the president's uh, rhetoric around the border. Um, and I think the tone in which our campaign was conducted will will be noticed. Um, I wonder a lot about specific audiences like the uh, how our um, our partners in Asia will view the the tone and content of the rhetoric that was used to defeat um, Andy Andy Kim in southern New Jersey, um, which was a really shockingly um, anti-Asian rhetoric um and then there were lots of others that are that are better known and so that you know that continuing message that um the u.s is not the place that it marketed itself being under president obama and in some ways under um, president george w bush as well a place where where we see diversity as a strength um you know i think that's going to be one big global takeaway of how this campaign was conducted uh, okay, and and final final question: Is there any individual who was elected uh, yesterday who you think sort of foreign affairs watchers should should keep an eye on uh, as potentially being able to do something pretty interesting on on uh, foreign policy issues? Oh well, so I'm not going to give you an answer as an individual, but I am going to give you sort of two categories that are really interesting. And one is that I believe um, I believe we had something like 70 veterans elected. 
And um, they range all over the ideological map um, and watching to see as the the number of Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans grows and grows um, in the House and to some extent in the Senate as well. Watching to see what those relationships look like is going to be very interesting. Uh, so that's one. And then it's also really fascinating to me that you have this little cohort of um, Obama security officials. Um, and, you know, the, we, there were a couple who lost, but even more um, who won. I should say Obama and also career um, nonpartisan folks who had worked in the, in the civil service as defense civil servants or uh, intelligence civil servants. And um, so that's uh, Elaine Luria and Abigail Spanberger in Virginia and Elisa Slotkin in Michigan and Tom Malinowski who's a human rights person who I worked with as a speechwriter 20 years ago, amazingly enough, um, at the State Department, and um, sort of watching how they work with the Congressional Foreign Affairs Establishment and how the Congressional Foreign Affairs Establishment works with them is going to be very interesting. You know, are they sort of eagerly welcomed and put on committees or are they told, no, you have to go get in line? Given that they're all coming from purple districts, that it'll be a real challenge to hold. Do they say, no, you know, as much as I'd love to be on foreign relations, I need to go be on um, agriculture or whatever else is really important to my district. And then are they able to have a voice on our issues if they're making those other choices for their political longevity. So those are the two kind of classes of people that I'm very interested in watching. Well, Heather, thank you so much, as as always. Uh, I really appreciate this. Oh, it was great to be on. Um, really enjoyed um, having you to think through these issues yeah. with and uh, look forward Likewise. to doing it again soon. Yeah, and, and I should say, you were the very first guest of this podcast ever. So, so thank you enduringly <laughs> for, for that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> As I mentioned at the end there, Heather was the first ever guest, episode number one of this podcast, and I am forever grateful for having her on. I'll post a link uh, from our conversation way back when uh, to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.